guys, welcome back to Revive School. We're wrapping up a crazy full week. I mean, think about this. Just at the beginning of the week, we were in the Old Testament talking about Daniel. Now here we are wrapping up uh, a full week of Hebrews, Hebrews 6. Before we do that, though, let me kind of just set the tone. Yesterday, just so you guys know, in Hebrews 5, kind of got a little all fired up in the spirit because the reality is, is like, look, there's these markers of spiritual immaturity. And so basically, we've got a bunch of immature believers, right? Kevin, this is really the, re- the picture that we have, this immature group of people that really doesn't have an understanding or depth of the Messiah. And then he goes into Hebrews 6.1. He's not done. At the end of Hebrews 5, okay, it sounds like, well, maybe he could take a break. But in Hebrews 6.1, he says, all right, therefore, leaving the elementary message about the Messiah. That phrase right there itself is mind-blowing. What do you mean elementary message about the Messiah? Let us go on to maturity. And so he's like, let's just not stay. And I'll just go out there and just go go say, maybe he's saying, guys, you can't just stay in the position of the death, burial, and resurrection. Like, I believe in Christ. Yes, I confess Christ. But he's more than just those three words, death, burial, and resurrection. Like, I'm not diminishing, hope you understand that, in any capacity what Christ has done. But you can't just say, well, Christ died for me. Praise God. He came back to life and just say, that's it. He says, you have to press on to maturity. Let me give you an example. Like these wristbands, they're great. They're great. Sin, death, love, faith, life. But I would say, Kevin, this is the elementary message about the Messiah. This wristband articulates Jesus so that you would want to, yes, embrace and enter into his rest that we've been talking about in Hebrews 4. But you cannot just say, well, I got my wristband. I'm good to go. Nobody would ever want to just stay in kindergarten through fifth grade or kindergarten through sixth grade, right? You'd want to go to junior high. You'd want to go to high school. You would actually want to grow. And that's what the writer says. You can't just stay as a 30-year-old male in third grade. (laughs) The chairs won't fit. We've got to move past this message of and look, this sounds really bad. It's not meant to. The death, burial, and resurrection. You've got to move beyond that so that you can grow and reflect and look like Christ. I don't know, Kevin, what, do you, does this resonate? Does this, is this what he's talking about? They're trying to sort all this out. They got the law going on, and he's saying, pick it up, move forward. All right, so what, what does that look like? If we are moving forward, well, he says, first of all, He gives, (laughs) this is kind of an interesting way to look at it. In order to move forward, in order to have spiritual progress, he gives you six features that you have to move on from. Okay, so the elementary message that we've been talking about, okay, the sin, uh, you know, the wristband, he kind of gives you six things that are the elementary message. Okay, so one, he begins to talk about, he says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead work. So, I'll just kind of do a category here, just a a repentance. Okay, very simple. This is a topic of repentance. And then he says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith in God. So what is he saying? He's like, look, here's the deal. Faith and repentance are kind of a given. Like the elementary message is, yes, you should. If you would, Kevin, would you go to Acts? Let's see if I have a text here. Can you go to Acts 20 verse 21? Okay, this is the initial, and I, I like what Wearsby says. Wearsby calls this like the, the invitation of uh, spiritual life. Like this is the introduction to all of this, right? So in Acts 20, verse 21, it says, I testify to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
This sounds, Kevin, like some pillars, does it not? It's kind of where he's after. So we're just talking about like, hey, this is like the initial. <laughs> now, when you talk into and when you look about re- repentance, I have, I have nothing against repentance. I have nothing against faith. He's like, but at some point we should kind of move past this. We should kind of move past this. Hey, are you ready to repent of your sins? Are you ready to have faith in God? Yeah. You said that like eight years ago. Have you ever known some of those people? Yeah, absolutely. And so here's this this imagery of repentance and faith. Now, I want to kind of walk through just a a little bit of these components. Um, Those are the first two. All right, let's leave it at that for right now. Okay, there's another layer here. Okay, now repentance and faith uh, leads to in number three that we have here. He says in verse two, he says teaching about ritual washings and laying on of hands. Okay, so ritual washings, whatever you want to write, I'll write ritual washings down, okay? But you can also write baptism, right? Because, Kevin, how, how would ritual washings be tied into the Old Testament? Any thoughts? Well, the priests would have had the wash before doing the sacrifices. Yeah, absolutely. And even if you're bringing forth yourself, there's these mikvahs. Rich, you've seen these, Tom, you've probably seen these in Jerusalem, you have these mikvahs that are these little baths that are outside these temples, uh, synagogue, excuse me. And so, but at the same time, here you have baptism. Let's just say, let's just imply maybe that the ritual washings could, al- could also imply baptism, right? It could be. But at some point, like you have to move on past when I was 16 and I got baptized, you know, at a church in Middlebury. Like, I don't just stay in that posture of, oh, can I talk about my baptism? Like that is moving forward from repentance, moving forward from faith, moving forward from baptism. So what I love about these words and these six words is that you could tie them in. And some some theologians, some writers would all they would do is take these six words and they tie it into all of the Old Testament. Some writers tie it into the New Testament. I would say you could probably tie them into both. You know, clearly they talk about repentance. Clearly they talk about faith in the Old Testament. Clearly they talk about ritual washings and baptism. Now, when you go to number four, so whichever way you want to look at it, ritual washings or baptism, number four, you have laying on of hands. Okay, laying on of hands. Kevin, if you would, would you go to Luke 24, verse 50? Luke 24, verse 50. And so here you have initial relationship, Right? to God. And then here you have relationship. It's kind of a cool picture to one, uh, as Wearsby says, to the local assembly. Luke 24, verse 50 says, then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them, right? So there's a form of laying on a hands in the Old Testament and clearly in the New Testament, a form of blessing, right? You put your hands on these individuals. There's a form of blessing. One more, Acts 19, verse 16. I think. I think it's verse 6, actually. Acts 19, verse 6. Let's try that one, Kevin. Acts 19, verse 6, it says, And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began to speak with other languages and to prophesy. Here's what's crazy to me. This one's, this one's kind of funny to me. Like today in the church, if you put hands on people, Kevin, people get offended. Like obviously we ask for permission when you put your hands on. I'm not talking about lost people out on the streets. I'm talking about people in the church. Why? What do you mean laying on of hands? That's not for today. You know what the writer of Hebrews says, you guys? I can't even believe we're having this discussion about laying on of hands. This is elementary 
messages that we're talking about. Like literally, this is almost to the point where like, are we, are we still here in the church? God help us. If we're still on the elementary message that the writer clearly says, hey, look, guys, it's time to move on past that. And he's not talking about moving on because, oh, by the way, you shouldn't do that. He's talking about that's so elementary. Move on. (laughs) It's kind of crazy to me. So then scripture continues on. He's giving these. Let's move on. Let's go on to maturity. Not laying again. In other words, let's not keep talking about repentance and faith and ritual washings and baptism laying on of hands. Not because they're not worthy messages, but as a believers, we've got to grow in the Lord. It's crazy to me. These could probably all be sermon titles for today, just so we could get started. I don't even know why we're laughing. It's just because of 12 years being inside and traveling all over the United States. This is real. You can say all you want, but this is what we see in the church. I got a text and an email today about division in the church over some of this stuff. The writer would just say, it's time to move on. Uh, scripture then just says, hey, look, here's a couple other layers, uh, five and six. Aren't you kind of excited? You're kind of like, hey, what's he going to say next? And you're like, I hope I'm not talking about that. <laughs> he talks about the resurrection of the dead. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, this is clearly talking about the future. Okay, resurrection of the dead and then eternal judgment. Okay, both of these are going to be uh, futuristic. Okay, there's something in the future that these are talking about. Okay, so you have initial relationship to God, you have a relationship to the local assembly, and then you have what would be considered in Hebrews 6, the future. Okay, Kevin, if you would, would you go to Acts 24, verse 14 and 15? Acts 24, verse 14 and 15. Again, the writer of Hebrews is like, look guys, you should be teaching by now. And you're still stuck on your first grade messages. Acts 24, verse, 5, uh, verse 14 and 15. Acts 24, 14 and 15. Uh, scripture says this, but I confess this, I confess this to you. I worship my father's God according to the way, which they call sect, believing all the things that are written in the law and in the prophets. And I also, I have a hope in God which these men themselves also accept, that there is going to be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. Like clearly, you guys, when Christ comes back, let me just put it this way, um, they're going to, people are going to be resurrected from the dead. Why? Because it goes to number six, there's going to be judgment. (laughs) Like this is going to take place. And in fact, he says this in Acts 17, verse 30 and 31. Acts 17, verse 30 and 31. In other words, we're not just going to lay dormant six feet under and decay. There will be a resurrection of the dead and there's going to be eternal judgment. Acts 17, 30, 31 says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day, look at this, you guys, where he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man, capital M, man, Christ, he has appointed. And it goes, Kevin, it goes back to, all of this keeps going back to the high priest. Think about this. We've even talked about the role of the high priest clearly was because he's been appointed by God. That's what it says. Christ has, God has set a day where Christ is going to judge the world in righteousness through Christ. He's been appointed by him. He's provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Like this shouldn't be a conversation anymore in the church. 
We shouldn't have to be the Sadducees that don't talk about the resurrections or the Pharisees that don't believe in, in Christ. Like, guys, we believe in all of these six things. Let's not have these discussions anymore. Again, this doesn't imply you can't communicate this. Please don't hear me say that. There's a season for teaching the ABCs. But it's time to take the ABCs and put them into, one writer said, paragraph form. It's one to put these ABCs and put them into a paper. It's another thing then to take these ABCs and then begin to live them out. And Hebrews 6, this writer, it's like he's not holding back, you guys. He's not holding back at all. And what's crazy is, is that you can take these words, tie them into the Old Testament views or tie them into the New Testament views. Either way, he says it's time to move, as Kevin says, move forward. I don't know. I'm just going to do this. It's super cheesy. I don't know why the mentality, okay? I mean, why, why is the mentality some, Kevin, are here, right? But some are like, ah, I, I'm okay. I, I, I believe in all this. Man, he, he doesn't say that. He says, literally, it's time to move. It's time to go. It's time to move forward past these messages. Why? Because when you get into verse 3 <laughs> and on, you have to have the understanding of 1 and 2 in order to get to 3 and on. It says, and we will do this if God permits. So if God allows us to move forward, I love that, Lord willing, right? Lord willing, God permits us to move forward, then here you go. It says in verse 4, like if we can move past the elementary message, then this is what we're going to talk about. <laughs> and this is where I'm like, ah... So then I'm like, maybe I'm back there because in verse four, it says, for it is impossible to renew to repentance those who once were enlightened. It is impossible to renew to repentance those who once who were once enlightened. All right, guys, let's just take it for what it says. Can we just do that? Can we just. Look at this text. The, 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 the phrase once enlightened actually implies, from my understanding of reading the text, okay, even on the original text and multiple different perspectives, okay, of commentators who have as well have done interpretations, it, it's talking about those who were once saved. Those who have once experienced salvation, ones who were once enlightened by, Kevin, the gospel, by the truth. The scripture says it's impossible to get those people, okay, to renew to repentance those that were once enlightened. Those that have walked away, it's impossible to get them to come back. Kevin, that's kind of messy, isn't it? Yeah, it kind of messes with the eternal salvation. It says in verse 5, you become companions with the Holy Spirit. You've tasted God's good word. You've, you've tasted this. Like you have literally, um, I, I, don't, I, just, I want to reference this here. You have experienced the miracles before your eyes. I even love that phrase, tasted God's good word. I've, I've, you know, and then it says you've tasted the heavenly gift. It could even be talking about I've experienced the miracles. I've, I've tasted the wine. I've tasted the 5,000. I've been a, partake, a partaker of all that Christ has done. I've even experienced the powers of the coming age. And then it says in verse 6, And who have fallen away because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to content. So the reality is, is that it really hammers this whole thing home. Four, five, and six. Now, look, you just, just, I'm not trying to take sides on anything right now. I'm just saying when I read Hebrews six, 
1, 2, and 3, we've had no problem with it. Would you agree? We had no problem with saying, you guys got to move past these messages. That's clearly what it says. And we're all like, amen, let's do this. Let's move forward as followers of Christ, as long as God permits us. But then when you get into verses 4, 5, and 6, we're kind of like, well, we need to have a different perspective of this. I think that's what kind of messes us up theologically. Is that clearly he says what, at one point somebody was enlightened and scripture just says, by the way, they ain't coming back. Now, we can have different uh, interpretations. And you got to understand, like I've, I've written, I've written so much on this. I've studied so much on this. I mean, there's really basically two views on eternal security. There's two views. One is, is that in Romans 8, 35 through 39. Okay. Uh, Romans 8, 35 through 39 you know, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Or as it is written, because of you, right? Scripture then says, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. It continues on, knowing these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. 38, for I'm persuaded that not even li- death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come or hostile powers, hostile powers, hostile powers, height or depth or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So clearly, Romans 8, 35 through 39 says, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. I think we would all agree. So many people take this perspective. When you have salvation in Christ, when you have this rest in Christ, nothing can separate us. I, I would agree. Based on this text, amen, right? But at the same time, then you go to Hebrews 6, Kevin, it clearly says and looks like, okay, just from reading the text, it sure looks like you could lose it. All I'm trying to paint a picture is, you guys, it's a wrestle. Now, you could say, well, gosh, I don't want to wake up and think, can I lose my salvation? Well, Kevin, can you go to John 6, 39 through 40? I'm not trying to paint that fear. I'm not trying to paint that picture at all. But I just, I want you to understand something. We have to be able to move forward past these elementary messages in order to have these discussions. Like we shouldn't be weirded out or freaked out or scared by taking the meat and trying to chew this thing. John 6, 39 says, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose none of those that he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. Verse 40 says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. I mean, this is talking about eternal security. This is desire to see them come to fruition till the end. In John 10, verse 27 through 29. John 10, 27 through 29. It says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish ever. No one will snatch them out of my hands. There's no conditions on that. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. So, Kevin, again, here you have these implications of eternal security. Once you put your trust and your rest in Christ, according to this scripture, you can't lose it. Just one more text. Romans 8, 28 through 30. Romans 8, 28 through 30. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29. For those he, this is, this is here we go. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Okay, verse 30. And those he predestined, he then also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So if clearly, if he already uh, foreknew, predestined, you can see the process. Like, 
It's a done deal. It's a done deal. And so here you have these passages that talk through eternal security. So please don't hear me say, I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. I do want you to understand, though, this is why there's heated arguments theologically about this discussion. Because in Hebrews 6, Kevin, anyway, we look at it. The scripture is pretty, set, it's pretty clear. Like those that have once what been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They become companions with the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's partakers with the Holy Spirit. They've tasted God's good word. Like we're talking about, they have experienced the truth. They've fallen away. And because of to their own harm, they're re-crucifying the son of God and holding him up to content. In other words, they've turned their back and it's impossible to renew to repentance. So what do you do with this text? I think you continue to press in and you don't run from these things, but you continue to study. All, all I will say is for me personally, uh, it's like, once you have salvation, this will stir the pot, I'm sure, then you work out your salvation. But you work out your salvation not to gain salvation. There's justification, there's sanctification. I'm sorry, these are theological words, but you, you, look, if we're going to move forward, we've got to go there. Justification leads to sanctification. Sanctification leads to glorification. Like, we should be in this glorification state. We should be in this, uh, I'm sorry, the sanctification state. This holiness state, this righteousness state, not just in the justified state. That first six things are the justified state. But as we walk out this right standing with the Lord, this righteousness, this holiness, like that shouldn't even be an issue if we're going to lose our salvation or not. But that makes people nervous. And I'll be honest, reading this text sure looks like some people that were in right standing They've completely fallen away. I don't understand this, and nor am I saying uh, you can lose it. I just want to at least make sure that you guys are willing to dig in in 4, 5, and 6 and say, guys, I don't know what else to do with this text except that this is what it says. I've read enough from Wearsby, MacArthur, Nelson's uh, Constable, multiple layers. And guys, honestly... Everybody has just a little bit of a different perspective. And not everybody has the same answer. But what I admire about what these people are doing is, Kevin, they're at least moving forward and they're studying the word. So I want to go back to the original Hebrews warning, which says, you heed the warning, which is you better obey the word of God so that you don't drift away. Somewhere in there, it's almost like Hebrews 6 has, has a little bit of this feel of like, he warned you not to stray away from the word of God. And if you do, Hebrews 6 says, hey, this is kind of what happens. And you're like, Kyle, that's too much. It's too forward. Look, I don't know. I'm just trying to piece this thing together myself. And you can say, well, as a teacher, you better have it all figured out. Well, look, I don't think anybody's had this one figured out. Except I can say for sure that my salvation is not based on my works. I'll just say that to make sure everybody knows we're on the same page. And if my salvation is not based on works, but it's based on him doing the work on the cross so that the veil is torn, so I don't have to be in bondage to the law anymore, then I, I know that my eternity is secure in him. But here's the deal. Because I know that, I want to be closer to him. I want to be in the word. And so it's not even an issue. I think that's why he gives these warnings. Guys, don't stray away from the word. Or these things could happen. You could try to read between the lines and say, I knew it. That's what Kyle's trying to. I'm not. I'm just trying to communicate 
the bigger picture. And in fact, verse 7 and 8 kind of talks about it even some more. He says, for ground that has drunk the rain that has often fallen on it and that produces vegetation useful to those it is cultivated for receives a blessing from God. Okay, those that hear the gospel, okay, those that respond in faith equal (laughs) blessed. Right. I mean, this is the parable that we see here. If, like the ground receiving the rain, you've received the gospel, as you receive the gospel in faith, it will naturally lead to blessing. I don't, there's no other way around this text. It's not a prosperity message. It's Hebrews 6, 7. And then in verse 8, look what it says. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about, about to be cursed. It doesn't say it is cursed. I think that's interesting. It is about to be cursed and will be burned at the end. Now, you can look at this whole text and say, okay, well, if you hear and you reject, Kevin, what happens? It equals about to be (laughs) cursed. Well, it will be eventually burned. But first of all, it's about to be cursed, which will then say it will be burned at the end. He says in verse nine, even though we are speaking this way and I love this, it's almost like all of this is hypothetical. Even though we're speaking this way, dear friends, in your case, we're confident of the better things connected with salvation. In other words, we know you're not living like this, right? That's kind of what he's saying. So maybe these are all cases that it could be. But I know because of your faith in Christ You have a better thing connected because of salvation. Like, this is not how you're living. But I want you to be warned, this is what could happen. So he says in verse 10, For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you showed for his name when you served the saints and you continue to serve them. It's almost like he just flipped the switch. (laughs) And he gets into Hebrews 6, verse 11. Man, you guys, I, I, don't, I can't believe I'm not going to be able to get to my favorite verse. Scripture says in verse 11, let me just read through some of this. Now, we want each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the final realization of your hope so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, I love that text, he swore by himself. God was the one who swore. In verse 14, I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply you. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise, which that in itself, just so you know, when did he obtain that promise? (laughs) It's an interesting text. Verse 15. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise for men swear by something greater than themselves. And for them, a confirming oath ends every dispute because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise. He guaranteed it with an oath in verse 18 so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. In verse 19 and 20, we have this hope as an anchor for our lives, safe and secure. You guys, this is the hope that we talk about. This is the anchor that is established in us, tethered to Christ, who's at the right hand of God. We have this hope. Safe and secure. Nothing is going to mess with us in this 
and it allows us to enter the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Verse 20 says, Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner. He serves as our anchor because he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And here you have the same description of Jesus being the high priest. That's our anchor. Christ is our anchor. He's our hope. He's the better covenant. He's the better promise. He's the better life. Can I lose my salvation? All I would say is keep your eyes, keep your eyes on Christ. We got nothing to worry about. All right, guys, have a great day. We'll continue this discussion tomorrow. Thanks.